Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 12, Eigenrobot versus the New York Times. Yes. Hey all, this is take two from Eigenrobot and QC. That's uh, Chow Chu Yan. And we are here talking about the New York Times piece that dropped today. Um, I am specifically taking an interview from Cade Metz that he failed to land because, <laughs> you know, I mean, like my, my philosophy is the following. I have sort of a platform for some reason, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not a journalist, but I am happy to give people space to just say whatever the hell I want. Hell and yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to edit it. This is this is going to be Rock QC coming coming directly at your ears. So, uh, man, what what do you have to say about this shit? Oh, my God. I don't even know where to start, man. There's just so much. Like, I feel like I could go on for literally hours. Please uh, do. If you, I mean, if you have, like, a more focused question, I'd be very happy to, like, start with a very specific question and sort of, like... Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, okay. So, the the initial news about Cade Metz writing this article for, for NYT came out, I don't know, I think maybe June last year. And everybody lost their minds. <laughs> yeah. Scott shut down his blog. I was, I was pissed. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, I, I feel more equanimity about it right now just because Scott's in a better place and like right, not so right. vulnerable to, to criticism. Mm-hmm. But like um, for, for you in particular, my understanding is he didn't reach out to you in the initial wave that, that came last summer, but That's he right. did somewhat recently yeah so recently i wrote a twitter thread about my own experiences in the rationality community and i was not expecting this like Cade reached out to me via dm and was like hey i'm writing a piece about the rationalist first of all i didn't know he was still writing that piece i thought he i thought it was killed so that was a surprise and he was like i'd like to talk to you about your experiences with the rationalist and i was like oh i panicked actually honestly i just yeah it was just so out of left field i really really did not expect it so I like asked a bunch of people and they were like, you probably should have talked to Kate Metz. And I was like, you're right. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> well, it's, it's spooky, right? I mean, like if someone's writing a story and planning on putting it on a platform like that and like they come up and ask you about it, that's kind of like getting a knock on the door from the FBI, I mean, and, yeah. you know, and like maybe they're not trying to implicate you in a crime yourself, but even still it's spooky as hell because, you know, if you were to accidentally lie oh shit, that's a felony, you know? <laughs> it, was just, it was just such a fucking bizarre, like, you know, ever since lockdown started, everything's just gotten more and more fucking, like, surreal. And this was just, like, another, like, piece of the, like, intensely, increasingly surreal <laughs> existence that we've all been leading. <laughs> yeah. Like a New York Times reporter. I, I just feel like a normal guy, you know? I don't know. People some pay attention to my opinions for some reason, but like, I feel just like a normal guy. And so to me to have, for me to have the like paper of record contact me is just like so bizarre. <laughs> like it's just the former, the once paper of record. I don't know. Like, Yeah, no. Well, I mean, they, they've fallen and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, God, I, I'm just trying to imagine being at the New York Times, being a tech writer at the New York Times right now. I mean, that one guy got shit canned for dropping an expletive in, you know, some conversation with kids where he was clearly not trying to use it as a slur. And I don't know what else is going on. I mean, Taylor Lorenz uh, went and accused, was it Mark Andreessen? Mark Andreessen, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, of using a different slur on Twitter and then deleting it. I don't that know. That was I, such a weird <laughs> fucking, like, 
I saw the tweet that had like the three screenshots of like first Taylor Lorenz making the accusation. That's one being like, that didn't happen. And then her like walking it back like it never happened. Like, what the fuck, man? Everyone saw you do it. You can't just pretend. Anyway. Yeah. Man. So, I mean, you know, where the hell are they coming from even? You know, they're, they're this absolute disaster of a platform and they're coming after Scott for what having people in the comments who who maybe have some bad ideas i mean like you know who reads the new york times it's fucking everybody <laughs> and everybody includes a set of pretty bad people like yeah but at, least, read- at least the new york times you know like hushes like shoves them all into the back so they can't comment on yeah articles. but i mean like you know and, and so they're accusing scott of giving like bad people a platform was it? Did they just have a podcast where they were interviewing somebody who claimed to be a literal member of ISIS? <laughs> you know, like the fuck are they getting off on these attacks? And I, I don't know. So, I mean, so you and I have, you know, you and I follow Sonia on Twitter, right? And Sonia, oh, Sonia said what I think is the single sharpest thing about that I've read so far about this whole debacle, which is like, oh, this is not really about the rationalists. This is really about taking a pot shot at Silicon Valley. And it just yeah. happens to be convenient. They're like, oh, there are these bunch of fucking weird nerds that Silicon Valley is into. Let's take a shot at them. And like, that sounds about right. <laughs> I'm going to be real. Yeah. Hey, I have an idea. I'm going to send Sonia an email and tell her if she wants to hop in. She can. Hey, you, that sounds cool great. That? No, that sounds awesome. I'm down. Okay, cool. Really no fun. guarantee it's going to happen, but... Um... Yeah, I like Sonia's ability to be like both very savage and say things that feel like accurate about these kinds of things. It's just like <laughs> I'm just very impressed by it. Yeah, no, okay. Um sent it to her. Um no, it's so Sonia's so fucking good. I mean, my first episode was with her and she she's so pugnacious and she's yeah. so forthright and I mean like she just was not going to make it as a journalist. Maybe she would, but I I don't know. She was also you know, she just doesn't like lying about people. And she's, there we go. I, I don't That's see, I don't, I, I mean, just to put it out there, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. like I, I think she's almost incapable of not expressing what her actual opinion is. God bless anything. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I'm mean, like, I just always feel like she is somebody who's going to give it to me straight. And I, I, I don't, I just hate the feeling like people trying to lead me somewhere mm-hmm. and um i mean i don't know I, I used to i used to do a fair amount of weed and one of my favorite activities while i was somewhat high would be to open these news articles and i could just kind of perceive all of the emotional levers that they were trying to push because <laughs> because like you know you're a little when you're high you you move through things a little bit more slowly and so you know when you go through an article like that what in, in a normal situation you just like flip past them very quickly and you don't notice them but yeah you know when you slow down your processing but it's like oh yeah i feel what this is trying to get me to do yeah you like see the fnords and stuff yep yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. that I, that is exactly how it feels so um anyway shit so we're where were we i am i'm also going through nicotine withdrawal right yeah, now. yeah no worries <laughs> so, so we're talking about speaking of you know you mentioned like oh i respect sonia so much because she just like says what's actually on her mind like this is very very apt as long as we're talking about this sort of like slate star codex versus the new york times it's like what is what kind of stuff does the new york times new york times put out they're like they've obviously got an agenda that agenda is like this very specific political agenda everything they talk about is filtered through that agenda meanwhile slate star codex is like i'm just some guy 
I'm a doctor. I have a lot of opinions about stuff. I'm just going to write about those opinions. That's what he's been doing for years. He did that years and years ago on the internet before anyone knew who he was. And he's still doing largely the same thing now, only like slightly more filtered so that he doesn't get like totally fucked by Twitter mobs or whatever all the time. Yeah. But like, I think just the very simple take is like a bunch of people increasingly over the years started reading Slate Star Codex and they're like, wow, this is so refreshing. This is a guy telling me what he actually thinks about stuff. And his thoughts are like pretty good, you know, like obviously I don't agree with him about everything, but they're like pretty good thoughts and they're honest. I can tell he's like being basically honest and that's so refreshing. Meanwhile, the New York Times just like went crazy. Like, Yeah. I, I mean, I think they've, they've often been kind of bad. I mean, I came of age, you know, in the early aughts, I think you might have too, when they were like ginning up the case for the war in Iraq and, you know, like all these bad things about Saddam Hussein and, and his weapons of mass destruction. And I mean, to be clear, I mean, fuck Saddam Hussein, but at the <laughs> same time, like, you know, it was journalists who were like passing out evidence from the CIA and fabricating it whole cloth. And like, you know, I don't think anyone ever really suffered for that. And I, I don't think the paper really took a reputational hit in the long term. And I mean, like, but, but something even more than that has happened lately. It feels like it's, it's yeah, not, yeah. it's, it's like broader than that kind of war fever. There's a really good, I don't know if you saw this and I don't know if I'm going to find it, but someone shared on Twitter, naturally, Twitter is the place where you go to see these things now, a very, very good, just like history of how the New York times went crazy. And I'm not going to be able to, I literally can't find it right now. So I'm not gonna be able to yeah. address this, but the very short description is like Trump was elected. And the newsroom was like, shit, this is unusually bad. And, you know, I get it. Trump, was, it, that's like a very plausible thing. To, it's like, yeah, okay, Trump was like some kind of, somehow kind of, some kind of like unusual disaster. And they were like, you know what? I don't think we can be neutral anymore. I think we have to like take a stand against Trump and take a stand against racism, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I get it. This is like in some sense a noble thing to do. But along the way, they seem to have like, I don't know, abandoned journalistic integrity or something to do it. And like, that's not... I'm not so into that part the way they did that, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, well, and I, I kind of wonder if they're lost at this point. I mean, as we're, as we're speaking, I think Trump was recently not removed, not, not, in, I mean, like he's already been impeached, whatever the hell it was where the Senate failed I to convict him. I don't know anymore. I'm not and, paying attention to that story. And so it's like, I mean, but he's out of office. Like he's clearly not going to hold power anytime in the next couple of years. So I mean, what the hell is, what the hell are media companies like the New York Times or Washington Post, you know, democracy dies in darkness, Washington Post going to do with their lives? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, like, I, I think they can't attack Biden in the same way. Like they're they're so bound up with the Democratic establishment at this point that I mean, what, what the hell are they going to do? Like keep attacking an increasingly irrelevant Republican Party? So this is the kind of, this is another part of the the piece that I mentioned about, like, here's what happened to New York Times. Like, there's there's obviously been all this stuff, this general trend of like, well, newspapers don't know how to make money anymore. There's all sorts of other sources for news on the internet. You know, the New York Times switched to subscribers and they have paywalls now. And so this guy's take was like, oh, the New York Times is just like pandering to their base. They just need to get subscriptions and keep subscriptions. And if they have to like, degenerate into like a very specific ideological bubble in order to do that. Like that might actually be the option that keeps making them money, even as they like stop being a newspaper and just start being like left wing Breitbart or whatever. Like, Yeah. Oh man. And, and you know, I mean, it does seem like Salzburger is just like in charge of the thing. 
which is is endlessly fascinating to me. You know, I, I was listening to um, um, uh, Mickey Kaus and Robert Wright have a podcast that they run and there's, there's like a public version of it. And then they have a paid version of it that they call a parrot room where they go. And that is 90% them just doing this kind of like old school journalist back and forth about like, who's, who's fucked them over over the years and like who they love and who they hate and all their like various grudges. And it's very interesting to listen to them. And one of the early episodes, they started talking about Salzburger and then they're like, wait, we should probably not be doing this. Whoa. <laughs> and that, that, and it's like, and but it's real, you know, I mean, like it's, this guy has private control over the company and he can fire like anybody at a will. He spiked. I think he spiked a piece by maybe Brett Stevens that was criticizing them for doing the, uh, the firing of the, the health guy over, over dropping the N word in private conversation somewhere. Oh, there have been and, so many firings. I can't even keep track anymore of all the firings, you know? Yeah, but like never anybody who should be fired, right? Like Lorenz still works there and she's I mean she's she's atrocious. And <laughs> I don't know. So um but like I think I, I I'm very curious about this, but I suspect that that kind of power is very important and nobody talks about it and nobody talks about it because like what are you gonna do if you start complaining about Salzburg and you get blackballed, you know? Yeah. I mean, but the thing is like it's just the consequences just aren't that bad anymore. Literally any former journalist for the New York times could just start a Substack the next day. Like they just being blacklisted from the industry just doesn't mean what it used to be. It seems to me like people just have so many more options. There's so much more freedom and there's people who understand that freedom and are like, yeah, we're, we're doing it. We're doing new media. I'm going to start a Substack. I'm going to do a podcast, whatever. Like, and then the people who are like, Oh, I'm going to write for the New York times. I'm going to fucking keep doing the thing that the New York times is doing for some reason, even though it's obviously not working. I don't know, man. Yeah, no, no, it's true. And I mean, like, I guess Scott moving over there is, is a prime example of this, you know, Matt, Matt Iglesias is over at stub Substack now. And he actually had a nice Twitter thread defending Scott, which I appreciated in his, you know, in his wishy-washy way. Like <laughs> he's, I, I mean, like he just refuses to say, no, you're being a dick. You're being a fucking dick. You're clearly being a dick, even though you can tell he thinks it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't quite understand that personality aspect on his part, but um, man, yeah. So I, I, I've i been complaining and talking more than I should. I, I want to give you some more. Yeah, floor. no worries. So, 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 oh yeah, go for it. Um, So like, I mean, you're coming at this as a rationalist and I mean, like what, what was your reaction to the piece overall? I mean, I'm just, it's like so obnoxious to, re- I'm, I'm, I have it pulled up right now. And I just, I like, don't even want to take in all of the words because it's just like, this is just not good writing. I just don't it's, want these words in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not right. I, I was reading Matt Levine the other day and I was struck by how beautiful his prose was no and kidding, yeah. the way that he was like sharp and crisp and clear and also like playful and, and reading Cade Metz, it was like, sixth grade level you know <laughs> damn i mean as much fun as i'm having clowning on the new york times like i i kind of want to like move a little towards slightly more su- substance and stuff one of the really unfortunate things about reading this to me is like so for 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 listeners like i have extensive history with the rationality community i was heavily involved from like 2013 to like 2018 let's call it and i like i know about 
the stuff that's being described in this article. Like I have gone to parties with Eliezer Yudkowsky. I have gone to parties with Scott. Like I have met these people face to face and just like for that reason, like watching some reporter talk about them, it's just like, oh my God, like I know what's, I, I have the actual inside scoop here. And this is just like so shallow by comparison. There is actually a fascinating story here that Cade did not successfully get. Like, he well, he got like some parts of it. He's there's this to me the part that actually sticks out the most, which nobody has talked about, is the part where he talks about how like Eliezer was involved in talking to some people who eventually like founded DeepMind and OpenAI. Like that's very interesting. That really could be in some sense the most important thing in this article that I don't think was widely known before. And like, I happen to know slightly more about that. And like, there's a whole cool story there that Cade did not get <laughs> from any of his sources, which is too bad because it's a really good story. And like, there's a, there's just a lot we could say about this. There's like actually like, oh, the rationalists, they're this group and they had some interesting ideas and Silicon Valley started paying attention to them. And that's interesting because Silicon Valley is like kind of in charge of the tech infrastructure of the entire world. So like that part I, I get it. That part actually is an important story and it's just been butchered. It's just like been done so poorly. Yeah. So, okay. So do you want to start out? I mean, do you want to talk a bit more about that story about Eliezer and, and the open AI guys or. Well, so think- it's, it's tough because, you know, this is the kind of thing where it would be better if I was like a real reporter. Like I, 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 I know a bunch of stuff secondhand and thirdhand, but to mm-hmm. get like, to get a story that I would feel comfortable writing down and being like, this is what happened. I'd have to like interview a bunch of people and I'm lazy and I'm not going to do it. I respect that. Yeah. But I mean like that, that is true. That is interesting. And I I hadn't been tracking that, you know, I, I have, um, I think open AI is especially interesting. I've, I've got actually kind of a mixed set of feelings about them, but I mean like their work is amazing. You know, GPT three is I, whack. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's whack. It's absolutely whack. And I mean, God, I don't know. Honestly, he should have maybe he should have just like gone and interviewed open AI people about what the hell is going on with GPT three and just like spent some words talking about that. Because with all due respect to Scott, who I think is a really important intellectual, which is a weird thing to say about somebody who like goes and, and blogs, but yeah, yeah, but it's I, true. I, it's really just true. He's just has like the the like i don't know quite how to say it, but like the highest quality writing that like tons and tons of people read or something for some value of tons and tons that's like very interesting you know yeah and and you know i mean like he's honestly one reason that people like matthew iglesias are going and defending him is because like everybody has been reading scott for years and mm-hmm. cribbing him and like mm-hmm. passing it on in their actual washington post or new york times <laughs> like often without attribution you know mm-hmm. and and his ideas have just like ended up saturating the the discourse they're they're in the water and like his his narrative framings are genuinely really powerful and are, are guiding the way that people think about the world in the United States. And, you know, I, I was complaining about Glenn Weil earlier and, but I think he is correct in saying that for the amount of press that they get, rationalists are probably the, the least well-known group, like, like, like the ratio of, um, you know, attribution to power is probably lowest for the rationalists out of, you know, many groups in America. Yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. I mean, like, there's a, I don't know, somebody, I don't remember what 
what outlet this was in, but somebody wrote a piece about the rationalists like two or three or four, or five, I don't know. I don't understand time anymore. Some number of years ago. Yeah, right. And uh-huh. it was mostly just like, oh, there are these weirdos who have like cuddle puddles at their parties. Like it was just kind of a look at, look at these weirdos piece, you know? Yeah. At the time, because it was like, like AI was like less of a thing in the public discourse. By the way, we, there's a whole discussion. There's a whole story about like how AI came to be a talking point. And like the rationalists have a lot to do with that. And I think people mostly don't know that story. Uh, that's like a whole very fascinating story. But unfortunately, it's a story that requires that you take the ideas somewhat seriously and are not just like using it to score points, you know, against Silicon Valley. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's interesting too, because I think it would be very difficult for somebody to get this story written at this point. Oh yeah. Just, just, I mean like this, this is poison the well, you know, I, I could hardly recommend that anybody that I know ever talk to a reporter. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I mean, just as a matter of protecting themselves, because now the story is like this, this, you know, East coast media oligopoly versus the, the West coast, like VCs and, you know, rationalism, these actually interesting stories about technology and, and society and, and the way that ideas are being transmitted, I think are just ending up in the, as a proxy at best yeah. for, for this power struggle. It's, which is just very unfortunate. And like one, one issue, one sort of concern I have about talking to publicly about this sort of thing is that like, I don't want my opinions to become ammo in the culture war here, you know, like, I yeah. Just, and, but I also don't want that concern to stop me from like saying what I think, like just generally seems to me, you know, our part of Twitter is very into sort of like criticizing places like the New York Times, like, oh, these people don't even, aren't even saying true things. They're just, but like, if we want to put our money where our mouth is, that really has to start with like, here's what I think actually. So yeah, this is hopefully this is what we're doing right now. I think so. At least a little bit. And like this also, like also keep wanting to tie this back into like, why do people keep feeling drawn to like, start codex? Because that's what he does. Like it shines through in his writing that he is really trying so hard to figure out what's true. And like, I gotta say, like, I like that other people like that. It's like refreshing. It feels good. I feel like he's not trying to fuck me over in any way. And that's so nice. you know. Yeah. No, I, I mean, he's a saint. You know, in 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 this very strange way, I, I I mean, he is you know he's really sharp, but there is a just levelness about it, and you can kind of see him agonizing, like to try and treat things I don't know rationally or at least fairly, fairly like he, yeah. even to the point where in a lot of his essays, like he's like, oh yeah, I just wrote this, and it made me feel good. And I worry about the fact that it made me feel good because it was a bad thing to write. And I mean, like, he's just so scrupulous, I guess. And I, I think he can go overboard with scrupulosity. And I, I myself am certainly not as scrupulous and probably differently scrupulous where I am. But I, I mean, just I, I appreciate it that he really tries, and it, yeah. it feels very, very much different to me than just like sitting down and and like typing up a, you know, a boring like you know color by numbers nord filled like you know think piece about why rationality is actually bad for sure for sure and this like it's interesting for me because like i often i don't this feels like an arrogant thing to say but i think i could probably 
write a blog that is in some ways as good as say Sarcodex. Like I think just in pure writing, it wouldn't be as good because Scott has a lot more writing experience than I do. But like, I think I personally have a lot of things to say about like various topics. And like, I've talked about some of those topics on Twitter, of course. And it's just really weird to me to think that like people I personally know, like some part of me is still not quite finished making suggestion adjustment, but that like people I personally know who I regard as just like ordinary, if cool and interesting could just like do a better job explaining things that are happening in the world today to the world than like the newspapers whose job is it is to do that. Like you saw, you, you shared the, like the Twitter comic from the guy who was like, uh, someone talking about like coronavirus and they're like, Oh, do you have a, a authoritative source on this? Thinking, like, <laughs> Dog schizo monarchist. And like, yeah, that's really the energy. There are like some really brilliant people on Twitter who yeah. are like, who ha- who are in the position of just like tweeting what they actually think instead of having to like filter that through layers and layers of like power struggles and political and social, whatever. And those people have valuable things to say about coronavirus and about like whatever else. And that's, that's where I get like my news from. That's like my newspaper, you know, is my Twitter feed. And it's just so weird to make that adjustment in my head. Like yeah. this is where the real news is happening now. Yeah. Well, and also shout out to uh anarchist garbage man. Yeah. I don't want to leave you out. Um, but uh, yeah, actually, I mean, COVID is kind of an interesting case with this where, I mean, it seems like everybody in our part of Twitter was actually coalescing on being like, you know, rationally afraid of, of COVID back in January. And it wasn't like, I, I don't think anyone was pretending to be an expert on COVID in particular or on epidemics. I mean, I've, I've actually published a, a paper on like, you know, transmissible disease, but it was shit and and I'm embarrassed by it. And it didn't give me any insight into COVID. Mm. And, um, but I mean, like all you need to do was be like, okay, there's a virus in China. China seems to be really reacting strongly to this thing. Viruses are transmissible. I watched contagion. (laughs) Yeah. But, and that's like, these are the only sets of thoughts that you needed to take to get from, like to, to coalesce into this thought of like, maybe this is something we should all be concerned about. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just, just nobody did, you know, and, and the media at that point in time was like coalescing around the narrative of what if masks are racist? And it, it, it was nuts. It was nuts. And, and they did a real disservice to everybody and it did by like costing them months of preparation, you know? It was nuts, but the, at least we all had receipts, you know, like people were constantly screenshotting. They were like, this is the ridiculous shit that Vox was saying on January 31st. This is the ridiculous shit that the New York Times was saying. Like, and like I got, I got to that period of time taught me to pay very, very careful attention to timestamps, you know? Yeah. It just really mattered when people were saying things in January versus in February versus late February versus early March versus late March. Like. Yeah, it was so interesting watching that process. Like the situation was changing so quickly, and like legacy media just wasn't responding to it quickly enough, and Twitter was, and that was just very, very interesting to see. Like that, that is like that's a hard experience to duplicate. Just to have like watched that play out in real time every day, just watching Twitter just continually be more correct. (laughs) Yeah, so weird and cool. Yeah, and like I don't know, so. So like, but I don't think, I I don't think legacy media have adjusted in response to this or, or like take a long, hard look at what they did 
and decided, man, we really, we really screwed the pooch. And that's also my impression. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you take away from that. Like you, you would hope that they would be able to change as a result of this, but I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like they're really changing in response to, you know, what happened with Iraq either. There, There was that long period of like, you know, basically pushing, you know, Bush administration claims onto the the population without questioning it. And then, you know, Obama went into office and, and they didn't suddenly become like deeply critical of, you know, claims that were being made by that administration either. And, uh, so I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like probably there are some reasons why they're incentivized to continue doing what they're doing. And maybe, I, I don't know. I, I, I miss the old blogosphere. It seemed like that was a pretty good corrective to the media that came out in the early aughts. And then we lost it for a while. Yeah. It's so funny how like Slate Star Codex is almost the only example of the kind of thing that it's doing that I can think of easily. Like, yeah. I don't know. There's Slate Star Codex and there was the last psychiatrist who fucking loved that guy, but then he got like chased off of the internet for some dumb shit. I don't need, uh. I don't, I don't remember what the story was, but I think it was some kind of like he was afraid of getting in some way canceled thing, which sucks because his blog was incredible. Like I yeah. think about the last psychiatrist daily. Like I reread his posts regularly and still feel like I'm getting things out of them. Whereas the New York Times is like the opposite of that in every yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> I reread those posts and I think, my God, why did I read this in the first place? <laughs> Sorry yeah. to keep clowning on the New York Times, but it's just sometimes, no, you know, sometimes one's, you know, tribal instincts <laughs> like flare up. And I'm I'm borderline psychotic right now from the withdrawal. <laughs> and I'm mad. And you know, uh people can like fast forward a bit if if they want to move past <laughs> these parts. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. So I mean, I, I guess we could talk a little bit more about the rationalists. I I wasn't sure you were totally done going through that. I mean, you were talking oh, yeah, about I mean, like, for sure. I mean, like you were talking about, um, you know, the story about AI and Elias are probably kickstarting a, a lot of this stuff that is like incredible technology, even if people don't realize it yet. I've, I've seen people do stuff with GPT three that probably people haven't thought about doing with GPT three. And I, I don't want to talk about it here, but, <laughs> but it's, it, I mean, it. I don't want to scoop somebody's business idea, it, yeah. but also what I looked at how they were building their business around this thing. Like, the world is going to change a lot once these tools become more public, and I think it's going to hit people like a ton of bricks, and nobody is going to see it coming. Um, so I mean, like that, like like things that you wouldn't think would be affected by AI are, are going to be affected by AI in, in really bizarre ways. And probably the way that people think is going to change too. So I don't know. I mean, like that, that's one thing I, I wish I could say more about that. Um, but I mean, like, I don't know what, what else do you think would have been good for Mets to have written about? Oh, I mean, this could have been just a much longer. So I, I'm scrolling down right now to this section. That's like what the rationalists believe. And I'm thinking about the thing that you just said, like, there's this actually very funny thing. So let's scroll, let's let's go back a little. The thing, everything I just said about Scott, like I can tell that Scott is actually trying to tell me what he actually believes. Like I can equally say the same thing about Eliezer. So I came across 
Eliezer's writing on Less Wrong, the sequences for the first time. And I want to say 2011 or 2012, I was a senior in college and I like didn't really know what I was going to do with my life other than maybe do math. And I came across Eliezer's writing and it blew my mind at the time. You know, I had never seen anything like it before. I was like, oh, he's like talking about like minds. Oh, he's like telling me there are cognitive biases. Like, wow, there, is, there are ways in which my mind can be wrong. This was, you know, I was a baby. This was like mind blowing to me at the time. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. my brain can be wrong about stuff. That's crazy. I rely on that thing a lot. <laughs> That's like really important to know about. Yep. Yeah. I, it's funny. I, uh, my, my like maybe in re- in retrospect, somewhat cringe introduction to rationality was less through Eliezer and more through Robin. Nice. Which is is maybe I wonder if that's an important like determining factor about where you ended up socially. <laughs> Could be, but yeah. Anyway, so uh, so okay, you read that you read Eliezer, and it's like, oh shit, I need to start thinking about how I'm thinking. Yeah, well, and the story is even about- funnier than that, right? It's that I I discovered Eliezer through HPMOR, which was the point. Like Eliezer yep. wrote Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality specifically to like get people interested in his ideas. And it just worked. Like I literally went on TV tropes one day and looked for Harry Potter fan <laughs> methods of rationality was on it. Listen, I was like, cool, I'm going to check it out. And my mind was blown. You know, it's his writing is, was unlike anything else I had seen at the time. It was like so interesting. It was like so jam packed with ideas. And then I went to less wrong and it was more of the same. It was like so interesting and so jam packed with ideas. And like, and they're sincere, you know, like this was all Eliezer talking about, like, this is what I think is literally the most important thing we could possibly be thinking about right now. I'm going to dedicate years of my life and all of my attention to it. And like that shines through in his sequences writing. He's like really fucking actually cares about this thing. And I think a lot of people are attracted to that energy of just like, wow, fuck, that's like great. Like we could be, we could like really do an important thing here. Like that's so cool. You know, like I, I see all as much. I do have like some substantial criticisms of the way the rationalists are doing things, but I really have to give them a lot of credit for like being a really important like part of my upbringing. Like they they raised me a little. You know, it feels a little weird to say it like that, but it's true. Yeah. So, so you mentioned some critiques. Like I, I assume they're not the same critiques as Cade Metz made. So what even are the let's 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 drill down like what even are the critiques that Cade Metz is making? There's like, you know, I've 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 been seeing people write takes about this on Twitter all day. It's just like, well, Cade is like, oh, there's like I'm somehow he's associated with Curtis Yarvin, and that's bad, because Curtis is bad. And like, I don't know, man. I met Curtis at a party once. He's some guy. He writes some shit on the internet. It's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Like, I like, mean like there just aren't even there are so few substantive claims in this. Okay, let me. I'm just gonna literally read it word for for word. You know, many rationalists embraced effective altruism in effort to remake charity by calculating how many people would benefit from a given donation. Some embraced the online writings of neo reactionaries like Curtis Yarvin, who held racist beliefs and decried <laughs> American democracy. <laughs> they were mostly white men, but not entirely. And here's another point. You know, our good friend Lim made a very good point about this bit, which is like the this, the piece is obviously trying to paint rationalists and by extension Silicon Valley. It's like, oh, it's just a bunch of white dudes. But like the rationalist community is actually a really interesting safe haven for like a lot of trans people and people just yeah. people who are just like fucking weirdos in a bunch of ways. And we could talk about that. We could be like, oh, this is like a cool place for a certain kind of weirdo to hang out. And like, that's cool. But nope, they're just they're racists. We just we can't we can't have nuance in this piece. We're trying to take down tech you know <laughs> racists are weird 
and rationalists are weird. Yeah. And yeah. by the transitive property. <laughs> by the transitive property. Uh, and yeah. it's actually quite funny. Okay, so then there's this bit in the piece where he talks about like, oh, two Bay Area organizations ran seminars in high school summer camps. So he's talking about a summer camp that I taught at for several years. And uh, it's actually quite funny the way this is, it's just, it's a short, there's this little paragraph here, like the curriculum covers topics from causal modeling and probability to game theory and cognitive science, read a website promising teens a summer of rationalist learning. And I think he doesn't quite say this out loud, but I think what he's trying to paint here is like, oh, this is their summer camp where they like indoctrinate people into racism or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's what he's trying to say. But he, what we actually did at that camp, so like admittedly in the beginning, it was much more less wrong flavored. Like I taught a class in the summer of 2013 at that camp called Cognitive Biases, because at the time I was really fired up from less wrong writing. You know, I was like, this yeah, is yeah. really important. You guys should know that sometimes your brains can be wrong. It's like, it was it's just such an important thing to know about your brain. It's crazy. Um, but, you know, then as I matured and just tried a bunch of stuff and sort of like started to see the limitations of the rationalist point of view, I changed what I was teaching at that program. We still called it the Summer Program in Applied Rationality and Cognition. But my classes went from being like cognitive biases to being, I literally taught a class called Introduction to Feelings. <laughs> you know? That's amazing. Because I was like, okay, I think here's what I think the kids actually need to know. I taught classes called like How to Dance and how to sing. And like, that's what I was doing at this program. And it's kind of funny the way in which we didn't really update the advertising to reflect that. Like the advertising stayed largely the same, even while I, I was attempting to like wrench the curriculum 180 from like math and science towards like, okay, but like, haven't you ever wondered what the point of living is? <laughs> is it, is it, it, would you say that like that was some kind of a, a, a rationalist, a post-rationalist transition? It sort of yeah, feels for sure. like it. Yeah. Um, and oh my God, we could go on and we, we could have a whole conversation here about like the post-rationalists, which is like a whole nother thing. But, yeah. I Oh man. I See, whenever something like this happens, I want to avoid us becoming legible because- Yeah, I mean, like, it's if, terrible. If can, Someone might write a New York Times piece about I know. I know. Right? <laughs> Like, and I think, I think it would be very difficult to do that right now because as far as the New York times knows, like we're a bunch of people with anime avatars <laughs> who, who antagonize blue checks on Twitter <laughs> and that's as coherent as it is. And like, if, if that's where we stay, I'm going to be real happy with that. That would be pretty good. I'm pretty down with that. Although I don't know, I'm still kind of into this idea. I was workshopping on Twitter earlier today, but like maybe we should just start a newspaper and just like do better. <laughs> like, yeah, that's kind of a fun idea that would involve becoming more visible, but on our own terms. So that's kind of nice. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder if we could do it in such a way. And I feel like I'm doing this a bit with my podcast where mm -hmm. like I have no agenda here. I want to talk with I, I have one agenda and that's I occasionally want an excuse to ask people a lot of questions to figure out what they're thinking about things because I want to know about something that they know that I don't know. Yeah, uh, that was super coherent, I'm sure. But <laughs> I, other than that, it's like, no, I have a bunch of friends. They're all online. I know I know them very well in some ways, not very well in other ways. And I just want to give them a place where they can go off about whatever shit's on their mind. Oh, yeah. And that is it. And, and, you know, then other people can listen in and hopefully it's entertaining and like maybe this fosters some kind of community and like sense of common well-being. Nice. I think I'm still thinking about that. Um, but 
you know, as, and you know, this, this is an example, right? So I think you could have a newspaper like that and it wouldn't be a newspaper that was any kind of agenda so much as I guess just a group blog. Yeah. Which maybe is what less wrong was, although that, that seems more directed. Yeah. I like this vision. Like I, this is, this is sort of culminating like a lot of train, a lot of different trains of thought in my life are sort of culminating in something like this. Like, you know, Sasha Chapin on Twitter, right? Yeah. He also like hangs out with us and one time blue check, but he's like too cool for his blue check now or some shit. Which yeah. is great. Like Sasha has been doing this writing coaching and the, there's this thing that he keeps saying that really strikes me, which is that like he keeps running into people who are capable of writing like stupendously amazing things, but who just like are shy. They're just like, oh, well, I don't, I don't have anything valuable to write about. And then he's like, why don't you just try writing anyway? And then they just write like amazing stuff. And he's like, oh my God. And you know, he's a guy who is like a, actual some some actual experience being in the sort of writing ecosystem like he sold pieces to various outlets and stuff so i think he knows what he's saying when he's like oh my god this is just like better than the stuff that i see in the actual real outlets there are so many uh i keep i i I keep referring to my own tweets which is maybe a bit of a douchey thing to do but i'm going to keep doing it no do it man Uh, a while ago this was like this was like before the pandemic Right before ish, like I tweeted, like smart fucked up people are a nation's most undervalued resource. And then, I remember that one. <laughs> and, and then you, you quoted me, thank you. And like I'm, I think about that a lot now. I'm like, wow, there really just are a lot of, and a lot of those people are on Twitter. There are a lot of people who like have a lot of really valuable things to say, and who feel like a little shy about saying them, so they say them a little bit on Twitter. I'm describing myself at this point. I just, I, I feel like I have valuable things to say, and I say those things on Twitter. And maybe we could say those things in other places too. Maybe that's it's just sort of gradually like encouraging all these like brilliant people who like kind of think that they're garbage to like, what if you just wrote a little though? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we should do that. I wonder, I mean, like, it feels like we're sort of coming up on the idea of a board or coming up on the idea of a forum or on the idea of like a subreddit, but that doesn't seem right. Exactly. I, I have no idea what, structure should look like but i'm for now i'm pretty happy already with just like the loose network on twitter of people who are like tweeting about what they want to tweet about and like yeah gently casually encouraging everyone it's like oh we're just we're just going to be like the nice part of twitter and we're going to like encourage people to do what they want and maybe that looks like writing and maybe that looks like i don't know youtube videos of pottery or something like that would be great that sounds a lot better than discourse you know <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And I feel really good about that. I mean, it, there have been a bunch of people I'm not like, not I, who, who have just like come in and like started from zero and now they're actually very large and, and like well-loved accounts. I, and, and everyone is doing something else. I mean, like power bottom dad is making power bottom dad jokes <laughs> and like think word is, is, you know, posting his beautiful story images and I mean, like it's just all over, and um, it's been such a delight just seeing all these people get together and get to know each other, and and like form this ecosystem that has absolutely no coherence except <laughs> post rationality is the friends we've made along the way. I actually, so I've been I've been thinking about this, and I think I have a hypothesis about what like we have in common, and I, uh-huh. and this might be a good place to to workshop it. So, like, I think. There are some people trying to like co- to, trying to like coalesce a post-rationalist identity around like oh here are the things that we read we read like Slate Codex but we also read like David Chapman or whatever and I don't actually think it's about that uh, like I th- I think there's a vibe and 
part of the vibe involves not wanting to be too careful about the vibe, not to spell out the vibe because you sort of like, it loses a little bit of its magic. I think if you spell it out. Yeah. But, and I think I have an interesting handle on it now. It's uh, it was inspired by something that visa tweeted uh, visa Convir Sami. He's mm-hmm. for, for listeners. He's one of my favorite people on Twitter. He's very sharp doing a very, very interesting thing on Twitter. Very and powerful. He tweeted a thing. I couldn't find it though. So I'm not sure if it was him about how like, the people that he vibed with best were people who used to be something else. They're like ex-lawyers or like ex-feminists or like ex-social justice or like ex-evangelicals. And I read that and I was like, oh my God, yes. This is like a thread th- like that goes through like all of my favorite people. They used to be something else. They like, and I'm curious uh, how that lands for you. Yeah, I think that reminds me a little bit of... Um... This book called The Magicians, I guess they turned it into a show, which I hated because everybody was like cast as someone who was beautiful. And it's like, <laughs> no, these people are explicitly hideous in the text. Um, but, but like at one point in the, at least in the book, the someone is speculating about why people are able to use magic. And he decides it's because like they have some amount of pain or they've been hurt in yeah, some way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, like, I don't know that any of us have or like, I don't know that it's systematic that we've been hurt or that we're doing anything that's analogous to magic. Exactly. But I, I really like that idea of some kind of a like history of having change or having been forced to change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, like if like once, once you have some identity and then you shed that identity, I mean, you were talking about Chapman earlier and this idea of, you know, something like system five thinking, maybe, maybe changing your identity leaves you in this position where you remember what it was like to be someone else. And maybe you haven't entirely rejected it, but now you are something else for sure. And so suddenly your identity is like this more flexible or fluid thing, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And so, so you can just start changing the lens through it by which you see the world. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I really think there's something to this. There's this whole like, I mean, for me, like the, the things that I would say I'm X, it's like, I feel like an X rationalist and also like an X mathematician, which we could go into in more detail also. That's like a whole nother story. But like the X rationalist stuff, you know, there was a period where I was like extremely immersed in the rationality community where I was like very like trying to like, oh, let's do it. Let's do the AI safety thing. Let's do it. Like I worked at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute briefly. I worked at the Center for Applied Rationality. I was like trying to do the thing and it just kept not quite fitting. And eventually I had to like do something else, you know? Yeah. And I remember the moment that like, well, it was sort of spread out over time, but it also was sort of a moment. There was a moment that the rationalists stopped being my in-group. And that was like a really bizarre, czar shift it like changed the thoughts i was having about the rationality community like there were thoughts that i was avoiding because they were too painful because they were like bad thoughts about the in-group and then once the rationalist stopped being my in-group i was suddenly capable of having those thoughts and was like wow there's actually a lot of stuff i don't like about this place now that i think about it and i just yeah i was like hiding that stuff from myself and then i wasn't anymore and then i I like put those feelings into like this rant that I wrote in Google docs. Uh, and it's about like just all these ways in which I was like, Oh guys, I just, I just hear all these, like all these concerns I have about the rationalists and like the way that we're doing things. And I sent it to a bunch of people 
in in the community in the community sort of to various extents and a bunch of those people were like holy shit thank you for writing this like oh my god this was like such a breath of fresh air and a couple people got really mad at me they were like you shouldn't have written this this was bad this was like harmful to our group cohesion or whatever this was like a bad political move and i got i i got into a fight with those people and it was very messy and i decided to stop sharing the document quite so loudly like there was a there were literally hundreds of comments on the sides <laughs> like whoa it was a really it was it was a whole fucking flame war kind of a situation but happening in a google doc and so then i disabled the google doc and i switched it to a pdf and i said okay people can still read this if they want to but they have to contact me personally and i'll send you the pdf and i'll ask you to not share it and this was like my compromise and i still get people asking me about it like every once in a while i talk about the rationalists and i say like by the way i wrote a 20 page doc and then people are periodically like just recently in the last couple of days people are like oh hey can i can i see your can i see your doc and maybe i should just publish it like maybe it would be just easier but i don't know i wrote it like a year ago it doesn't reflect my current thinking yeah it's it's dicey i mean i think it's i don't know that i i hadn't been aware of this and um i mean i think it speaks really well to the rationalists that at least a lot of them were like Thanks for doing this. I'm really glad someone is like writing this kind of a critique rather than than writing you off, you know? Yeah, yeah. And like definitely to the rationalist credit, like I got a lot of ideas. I mean, like the very first thing I got from the rationalists, from my very first, you know, they run workshops about rationality. And from my very first rationality workshop, the main thing I got was just this idea like, oh my God, I could solve my problems. Like the problems in my life are like things that I could think about. I could like use my giant brain, which previously I'd only used to do math to improve my life. And that was like, it sounds very simple when you put it that way, but I just didn't have that concept. And I am genuinely grateful for all that kind of stuff. Like the rationalist gave me enough tools to like go through rationality in some sense. Like they like instilled in me these virtues you could say of like what if you actually had true beliefs and like did things that were good and i'm like oh i would like that that sounds great and then yeah. I just kept, and then i kept following that track i was like what if i did that and eventually just led me away from rationality and it's it speaks well that rationality is capable of that it's capable of yeah. giving you things that let you move past it that's great a lot of movements don't have that property yeah no for sure i'm like you know you you look at almost anything else and and it's like People see the movement as the destination mm-hmm. or people in the movement do, which I mean, almost, almost seems like you would expect that to happen if, if you had some movement that like guided people in some direction or another, like just as a matter of survival and perpetuation, if you had a movement, the goal of which was to get people out, then like, then it, it doesn't, then it, yeah. <laughs> uh, like without, without a constant flow of people like coming into it, then it, then it's over sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, like dating apps where they don't want they don't want you to settle down yeah you know when you stay on the app forever yeah that's right so okay cool um is is there anything else you want to hit oh there's like a million things like i feel like i've been very vague so far like i've said things like oh i have a lot of experiences with rationalists and i have a lot of criticisms but i haven't actually described any of those either any of those experiences or any of those criticisms yet so if you yeah. want to ask me about that i'd be down okay what what are your top three experiences and top three criticisms of rationality whoa okay that's very interesting so top three experiences is going to be rough because there's just a lot of good stuff let's see all right one off the top of my head i went to a birthday party on the beach with a bunch of rationalists once 
And they introduced me to a tradition, like a rationalist tradition kind of, called doom circles. And the way doom circles work is you get together in a circle with a bunch of people. And you take turns, like one person is sort of in the hot seat and they take turns. And everyone else in the circle goes around and tells that person what they think they most need to hear. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. It's possibly intense. dangerous. It's yeah, it's very intense. It's like, oh my God, I'm gonna people are gonna tell me like what they think my biggest problem is, you know? Yeah. And you'd think it would get like really mean, but it doesn't get that way. Like and it, it helps to like tell people this. It helps people tell people like this is not about being an asshole. This is about helping people grow. And this is like actually a good example of like the kind of spirit I got from the rationalists all the time. We were like very concerned with like doing better. Just like, oh my God, like things are just not that good. They could be better. What if they were better? What if we like tried new stuff? Like that was a really cool attitude. And this was a great example of it. Like people tried all sorts of things and this is one of the things they tried. And that Doom Circle was literally life-changing. What I got out of it is that there were like 12 other people there and six of them told me, hey, QC, you seem like a cool guy and we kind of want to talk to you, but also you seem really cold and unapproachable. And like, we don't know how to do, we don't know how to deal with that. Like help, help us. You know, it wasn't like, Oh, fuck you for being an asshole. They was like, we want to connect with you, but we don't know how. And I was really struck by that. I was like, wow, holy shit. Like I haven't been having the effect on other people that I want. Like, Oh, that's thanks for letting me know guys. Thank you. That's, and I like kind of turned my life around a little bit after that. Like I decided to just be less of an asshole generally. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know what, what you were like before, but I mean, right now you're super approachable. Thank you. I've worked so, very hard since then. You know? Yeah. Well, well done. <laughs> like, yeah, I tell this story now and they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, but no, it's like, yeah, in 2016, I was an asshole. <laughs> I was also very unhappy. This is like, so here's another moment that comes to mind now this I'm just like going through like, what are some things that I really got out of my experiences there? Uh, you know, so some of you listening may know that I, I, I talk about feelings a lot on Twitter. I talk a lot about psychology and about emotions and like actually the rationalists are the reason that I started thinking about that. There was a, there was a small workshop in, I want to say 2014 where, uh, that was for alumni of the center for applied rationality. And, that workshop introduced me to Eugene Gendlin and Gendlin focusing, which is this like sort of therapy modality where you try to like, it's not quite right to say that you try to like describe what you're actually feeling, but it's a little bit like that. You like try to describe what you're actually feeling. And uh, I was, I did not know this at the time, but I was at the time extremely out of touch with my feelings. I was just like shoving that shit way down and it was ruining my life. But I didn't know that because I was shoving down those feelings. And so I tried this thing. I was like, oh, maybe I should try to name some feelings. And I got like this kind of like gaspy, stuck feeling. And the best word I could come up for, for with it at the time was loneliness. And I was like, oh, am I lonely? Oh, I didn't know that. And of course, then I shoved it all aside because it was terrifying, you know, yeah. to confront all of that. But that was how it started. It was that it was the rationalist teaching me, hey, did you know that you can try to name your feelings? And I had no idea at the time how badly that was exactly what I needed. And like, I eventually just kept following that thread over the years to like more and more like, Oh shit, I really need to fucking learn about feelings. Like, Holy fuck. This has been like, 
I've been like lagging behind in my emotional development my whole life. And it's been like fucking everything up. And I really got to get on the ball here. And I still feel like I'm doing that. Like I'm still on this trajectory that was started by an experience in the rationality community. Nice. Okay. So it's interesting to me that both of the things that you mentioned about rationality are not very rational. Not, <laughs> not, not like particularly rational, you know? Yeah. This like, is another, like, sorry, but this is, this is another really funny thing about like the whole rationality community thing. Like people, the, the, the impression you get from the writing is completely different from the in-person community. So I was very embedded in the in-person Bay area IRL community and also really embedded around the, the people who worked at the Center for Applied Rationality. And those people were like way ahead of the like popular conception of like, oh, the rationalists are about like applying Bayes theorem to everything. It's like, no, we were, that's what it was about in like 2012. Now we're like the cutting edge rationality was about feelings for a while. <laughs> it really has been, but that stuff just didn't, didn't make it out into the discourse. Like the discourse, it's just harder to understand and we talk about it less in public. So that's just not the image, but like the people at the center, at like the core of the community who are like really trying, they're like, how do we do it? How do we become saner? We're like, we, we've been doing feeling stuff since at least 2014. Like it's, it's not a new topic to be like, what if we cared about our feelings and not just our thoughts? And even then though, the funny thing is like, even then I feel like I kept, I kept wanting to take it further than, than other people, not everyone else, but like a bunch of other people. And like other people will be like, well, you have to fucking temper that shit and like also have reasonable thoughts. And I was like, no, fuck that. I want to be unreasonable as shit. <laughs> Hell yeah. Welcome to post-rationality. Yeah, exactly. It just felt to me, you know, like it just felt to me like that was so much more what I needed. Like I was just like, no, I'm pretty sure that I've been like, like kind of keeping my feelings like trapped in the closet <laughs> yeah, for my uh -huh. whole life and i just kind of need to let them out and when i let them out they're going to be like hairy and gross and they're not going to know how to behave in polite society <laughs> and that's just how it's going to be <laughs> like so let's let's see i have one more one more thing that i one more good thing or what well, the question was like a good thing that i got with the rationals yeah I yeah have, i have tons more stories like this they're all about sort of thing but let me see if i got another one off the top of my head okay here's another one actually and this is i have like many stories like this but this is just the next one that came to mind there was another cherished rationalist practice which also will not sound very like cold and calculating um it's called hamming circles and it's based on this quote by by mathematician Richard Hamming, um, which goes like, what's the most important problem in your field right now? And why are you not mm. working on it? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So we got really into that and we were like, oh man, let's do that. But to our lives. So Hamming circles is this activity where you get into a group of four and you again, like take, people take turns being in the hot seat and the person in the hot seat is asking themselves and the group is helping them. Like, what's the most important problem in my life right now? And then like thinking about that problem, uh, which is also like doom circles. It's very intense, but also like doom circles can be like, just really, really good. Like these are the kinds of conversations that change the trajectories of people's lives again. And it was in one of these conversations that I was at the time I was an extremely unhappy student, a grad student. Yeah. And that's what I brought up in the circle. It like took, it took a while for me to work up to it. I, you know, I was like very 
nervous about talking about this, but I, I like worked took the courage somehow and was like, all right, guys, I'm like really miserable in grad school. I don't know what to do about it. Can you guys help me? And I, it's hard to even describe what it was that was so helpful, but someone was basically like, what if you just left? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I was like, oh, but what if, oh, this, that, and the other thing. And they're like, well, okay. So what you've described is you're feeling very lonely in grad school. And maybe if you left and got a normal job, then you could hang out with your coworkers. <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, "Oh shit, you're right. <laughs> yeah. I can hang out with my coworkers instead of like not hanging out with the other grad students, which is what I was doing." And I don't know there was other stuff going on in that conversation, but just the first of all, just being able to have it out in the air, like just being able to talk to other people about it at all was so helpful. And then having someone be like, "No, it's it would really be fine if you left grad school. You just don't have to stay there," you know, like that combined with a bunch of other things that we don't have to get into. Uh, but like that was one of the experiences that finally led to me actually leaving grad school. And that's a decision. That's like probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. I'm very happy that I did it. And like, I probably would not have been able to do it without, I mean, it's so hard to tell, but I probably needed the rationalists to help me make that decision. Like they were the ones who sort of gave me this con, this whole framework around like, what if you just made better decisions though, uh, to get more of the stuff you actually want. And I was like, Oh yeah, what if I did that? <laughs> <Crazy>. <laughs> Uh, so that's like another thing I really feel like I owe a lot of gratitude to the rationalists for, for being the sort of, uh, not only giving me that framework, but also just giving me the, the community of like people who were not other grad students who could like talk to me and help me think about like, well, yeah, what if you, what if you left grad school? Because everyone I talked to at UC Berkeley, which is where I was, it was like obviously very biased, you know? Uh-huh. Like either they're other grad students who don't want to think about their own reasons they might want to leave the program or they're my professors who like also don't want to think about their own reasons for leaving academia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I just was, and I, I just, I was so increasingly dissatisfied in so many ways. And like, I'm just, I'm glad that I was able to have that opportunity to like think about leaving and then do it. So that's, that's, that's a third thing. Cool. That that's beautiful, man. So then your second, the second half of your question, uh-huh. three critiques of the rationality community. Oh boy. Okay. Um, this is really going to be off the top of my head. This is not going to be like, I want to preface this by like, this is not like a reasoned philosophical critique. This is like some guy talking to his pal on the internet about what he thinks, but. And, and let, let's also preface this. Like if I were in the audience, I would, I suggest to the audience that they compare these critiques and the quality <laughs> of these critiques to those that were published in Cade Metz's piece rather than necessarily just viewing them as like absolute quality yeah. of, of a critique. This is not, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So the first one is going to sound like a joke, but I, I, I'm going to elaborate on it. It's that the rationalists did not know how to have fun at parties. <laughs> like this was actually one of my first critiques that I that's sort of been gestating for a long time. I like, I kept having this experience of going to a rationalist party and there would be booze, of course, you know, laid out on the counter and no one would drink it. What? <laughs> oh no. People would just be having these conversations that were just like the same conversations they were having the rest of the time. They'd be like, Oh, what do you think about cryptocurrencies? What do you think about startups? And I'm like, look, I'm not saying people shouldn't have these conversations, but I'm just like, that they weren't, I don't feel like anyone was really having that much fun with it. You know, people weren't like getting shwasty and like partying in the way that I 
was used to. You know, I I would I went to college. I went to like I went to MIT, but it was it was it was chill. You know, like I was yeah. in a fraternity. I went to frat parties. I hosted frat parties. Like I felt like I had some perspective on what a party should look like. Yeah, yeah. And I was just constantly disappointed. I was like, no one at this party knows how to have fun, and I'm sad about it. <laughs> <laughs> and this really, but this this ties in. Like I can tie this to a much more substantial critique, which is like, I. I could I could say this in a lot of different ways, and there's a lot of different ways I could qualify to try to make it more fair. But you know, it will not have escaped anyone's attention that the rationality community, you know, selects for people who like are on the autism spectrum, who are socially awkward, who are the sorts of people you might call big, big nerds. And those people indeed are less good at having fun at parties, and that's okay. You know, they don't. It's not their job to entertain me, and like. It, but it ties into this whole, like one of the things I wrote about in my 20 page rant is this sense that I had that like a lot of rationalists are just anxious people. They just, they were already anxious people before they ran into rationality. And then rationality and Lestron gives you this whole set of things to be anxious about. Oh They're like, no. Ah, remember how you were anxious about graduating from college? Wouldn't you now like to be anxious about whether the world is going to be destroyed by artificial intelligence? Oh no. Like, oh, Shit, that's oh, an even better thing to be anxious about. I'm gonna be anxious about that thing now. But the underlying anxiety is the same. It just found a new target, you know what I mean? And like Yeah, yeah. It became increasingly clear to me, or at least according to my point of view, which people are of course free to disagree with, that a lot of what was going on in the community, and I don't think this is at all unique to the rationalists, but that a lot of what was going on in the community was people sort of projecting their own issues onto AI and effective altruism, whatever else, you know. Like, I mean, like, to be fair, I also see almost every movement trying to do something in America mm-hmm. as having this problem of oh, people yeah. just try to project their problems yeah. on whatever thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like a, it's like a fucking uh, what's the word? Uh, oh, my God. I can't. Uh, <laughs> totally is it just projection? No, no, no. I was I was trying to come up with a with a funny analogy. It's like a buffet, like. The internet is like a buffet. Like here, here are all these issues you can project your issues onto. <laughs> like yeah. which ones you like to pick? And some people pick AI safety and effective altruism. Like so, effective altruism has a closely related problem, which is it also attracts people who are very anxious. And the thing they decide to be anxious about is, am I a good enough person? Yeah. You know, like, am I doing enough good? I have to do it. I have to do good. I have to do the most good, or else I'm bad, and that would be bad. And like. Then comes along effective altruism. and they're like, hey, did you know that you could try to quantify how much good that you're doing and that we are doing that? And so maybe if you hang out with us, then you will not feel so bad all the time. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, oh, yes, I want to be a good person. This is where the good people are. Like, Yeah, shit. That actually, I, I mean, I sort of wonder how much of that is true in, I think this is probably more common on the left than the right, but just like, you know, sort of this extreme scrupulosity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of, of just like worrying all the time about whether you're good. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is like just a deeply Protestant thing. I'm not sure Catholics do this. Catholics have always given me the vibe. They're like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go to confession. It's, uh, I'm going to be absolved. I'm not going to worry about it too much. But, yeah, you know, if, if you're like a Calvinist, like, oh, shit, what if I'm really not elect? I, I, I'm not sure about this. I'm also not sure it's an original thought. But it does seem like there are a lot of these projections of like, like older religious cultures onto like sort of, sort of more atheistic frameworks that, oh, yeah, that have actually sure. resolved any of the underlying issue. For sure. There is like a whole, like 
there's like a whole like kind of what would you call it? like crypto Christianity, you know, yeah. underneath a bunch of other stuff. We were like, oh, we're not, we're atheists now. It's we're not, we're over that. But like, if you grew up that way, or even if your parents grew up that way, that shit is like inside of you, you know. Yeah. If you've decided, oh, this isn't what like if you grew up or your parents with like a notion of sin, like there are things that I could be eternally damned for doing. Like that stuff can just attach to something else. You know, it could attach to like, oh, it would be a sin for me to like not maximize expected utility. Or it could be like, it would be a sin for me to like not be sufficiently woke or whatever. Like from my perspective, these are very similar psychological dynamics. And of course, this is like a very annoying thing to say. It's like very annoying to come to someone and be like, hey, that thing you think is really important is like just your psychological shit. (laughs) It's an obnoxious thing to say. So I try not to say it to specific people. I try to say it to myself, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I think it's worth knowing. Like, I think it's worth saying out loud very clearly. I think a lot of this stuff is just like working through psychodrama. And the way you can tell is that you can like, you know, I'm not necessarily going to say go to therapy, but things along the lines of go to therapy. You could like do drugs in the desert. You could like meditate. I don't know. There's all sorts of things you could do. And you can notice how those those practices change your relationship to the ideas that you formerly thought were so important. Like I myself, you know, like had a lot of experiences where I like went to weird workshops and I cried a bunch about my feelings and those experiences gradually caused me to care less and less about what was going on with the rationalists, you know, as I was like going to these places where I like, you know, experienced warmth and joy and connection. And that was so wonderful. And then I went back to the rationalists and was like, this feels worse. (laughs) I don't, don't, I'm not into this anymore. Yeah. And I did more reflection on this. This is, let's call this like part two criticism. Uh-huh. of the rationality community like this is this this was a hard thing for me to come to terms with but like it also relates to why i became a math grad student and also why i left like a thing i have come to realize to say it simply is that like i got into both math and rationality because i had like wrapped up my ego in being smart and yeah this is a very common thing with rationalists and for that matter probably with a lot of people in silicon valley like Oh, it's just, just with everyone. It's just a kind a kind of way you can grow up. You grow up, you know, you grow up like I did with parents who like weren't very good to you and you like feel bad about that. You're like, oh, who's going to love me? And one of the things they liked that I did was when I did well in math competitions. So I learned, I was like, okay, this is how I get love and attention and approval is I like excel intellectually. Oh, I, a related story. So there are some things about you. I've never spoken with you by voice before, but there's some things about you that have reminded me a bit of my friend, Jen and her dad. uh, She, she maybe had some similar thing, but her dad in particular was, um, Oh God, I think he's like a physicist of some kind, but like her, like her, her like interaction with him would be, he would assign her a proof when she was like eight or 10. Whoa. And if, if she solved the proof over the weekend, he would take her to the park. Oh my God. (laughs) And and it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, and it wasn't like, like a, it wasn't a special thing being taken to the park. It was just like, I'm not going to call you dumb if you solve this proof. Oh oh no. (laughs) Does that resonate with you? (laughs) That's so, I mean, my dad never did anything like, but like, oh my God. Like. There was definitely a, like, I think the way it was for me was that, like, when I was younger, I kind of got in trouble at school periodically, and my parents weren't very happy about that. 
And I noticed that the thing that got me off, that got them off my case the most was when I was just doing really well in school and doing well yeah. in that contest. So it was like, when I was doing that, they were like, okay, QC's doing fine. We don't have to worry too much about him. Like they, they sort of just like let off on me the most. And I was like, great, I'm going to keep doing that. Thanks guys. That's what I'm going to do now. Cause I don't want you on my case. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man. Well, and, and you know, actually that like that, that like being smart as an identity, I, I mean, I went through a phase like that myself too, for sure. I, I mean like liminal warmth could talk about what I was like in college when <laughs> even then I was sort of relaxing, but I mean, I've, I've actually found Twitter kind of therapeutic in the sense that I try to be aggressively dumb about things yeah, and, sure. and like, it's great. And like, Calling people nerds, which is definitely a cell phone first and foremost. I mean, like every own should be a, a cell phone first, oh, yeah. like, oh, yeah. I believe. And like, but like that, or like demanding that people post their GRE scores. But, <laughs> but like, you know, I, I think it's actually, I think it's becoming more widespread that people are kind of becoming in like, I don't know, intellectually insecure. Mm. And I wonder how much of that is just because of the, I mean, this is like, totally shot in the dark and and post hoc storytelling but i think there was a there was a moment when people started to worry a lot more about going to college as as this sole determinant of how you're going to do and mm. not just going to college mm. but going to the right college yeah, yeah, and yeah. people started freaking out about this because if you didn't excel intellectually then like you were in deep shit you weren't going to make it to the upper middle class yeah, yeah, and yeah, suddenly yeah. the middle class and lower class started looking really bad yeah. you know and so, like intellectuals weren't people that you made fun of on Frasier. It was like, oh no, these are the only people who can have anything like a like normal life as you usually imagine it. And you know, I, I don't know. I think we're putting a lot on our kids, and I kind of hate it because it yeah, yeah, yeah. totally distorts. Like, what's your view of a good person? Well, like, like, or at least a powerful person, and it turns out it's somebody who does well on standardized tests. Which, like, I do well on standardized tests, and I do not deserve veneration. For that. <laughs> Oh my God, this is a, this, this opens up like a whole avenue of, of the discussion that we could have. There's this whole like class anxiety angle that you could take with it. There's like, this was supposed to be my ticket, you know, like my ticket to the upper middle class kind of like, oh man, that's like, we could do a whole separate thing about that. Yeah. Um, but to tie it back to the rationalists, like I, so this is, this is sort of, this is the story that I'm currently telling about sort of my relationship to like being really smart and like. I'm not alone. I've talked to other people in the rationality community who've admitted they're like, Oh yeah, I, I have this also. I am also very, very invested in, in seeming smart and being smart and like saying smart things to people in conversation. This is like my shtick. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. It's my shtick too. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm with you, buddy. Like I'm not gonna, this is like a, a key sort of methodological difference between me and say like social justice is that I don't believe in shaming. Uh, for various reasons. We could talk about that. I think shaming is like an extremely bad way to get people to change their behavior. And I would much rather be like, I get it. I get where you're coming from, man. I've been there. Yeah. It's cool. And there's like a better place that we could go and we could, you want to, you want to, you want to chill in the better place a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That just seems better. It just seems more fun, like, and more effective as opposed to like guilting people into like pretending to change, you know? Yeah. So, so just to be clear, th that feels more like a critique of like certain social justice approaches or like, yeah, yeah. Sorry. That, than... That's, that's, this is, that's not directly on the rationalist thread. This is, that's just like, Oh, here's like a way that I operate around like criticism. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. I follow you. Okay, so um, is that the is that are you done with the second critique? Like, just sort of this, like it's a like it's sort of a setting where like you can identify with being smart, and maybe people should try to grow past that, even if they're smart. Or so there's that part of it. There's also just the like it's not really insofar as you think the point is to like actually have important and relevant thoughts about like the coronavirus or about like what should we actually do about AI. Like this, like, I want to seem smart thing was getting in the way of that. Like when I was involved Mm. in the national community for most of the time, I kind of treated it as this game that I was playing that I was good at. You know, I was like, Oh, it's fun. It's fun to just like shoot the shit with these people and be like, Oh, Hey, this QC guy has some smart thoughts. I'm like, yeah, dude, that's right. But like, they weren't (laughs) that useful. (laughs) I don't think, (laughs) I don't think I was doing anything that was particularly good for a while. Uh, and that's like very worrisome since the pitch is all about like we're focused on the issues that really matter. And like insofar as there are these like huge psychological behemoths underneath the water that are like, according to me, largely determining many people's actual behavior, then that's not what's happening. And there's this other thing that's happening instead that's worse. Uh, this is like, this is, I, this is my attempt at like a critique of rationalists like on their terms. Like, okay, your stated mission is to like have good thing, thoughts about things that actually matter. And here... I claim are like substantial psychological issues that are distorting that goal. And you might want to do something about that. And they are like, there are people, there are many people in the rationality community who like are trying very hard to understand psychology, their own psychology and other people's psychology and they're doing good work. And like, I have benefited a lot from talking to those people. Um, but it's still, I, I, I still want more, you know, like I want people to keep going. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And third critique. So that was number two. I, I thought of a good candidate for them. Okay, so those those were sort of more personal and more psychological. So here's like a more philosophical thing, which also ties in with the other things, is that I think this is very much inspired by like David Chapman reading Meaningness, which was a really big influence on me when I was trying yeah. to like deconvert from rationality, is he says a thing, David, in one of his, um, one of the chapters of Meaningness, it is something like, rationalists want there to be these things called beliefs that can be true or false. And there really aren't there. Like beliefs don't really exist in the way that the rationalists want them to. And like true and false don't really exist in the way that rationalists want them to. And if you actually look, you'll find that there are just many different overlapping, but not identical notions of belief. And he says a lot of other things like that. And the first time I read that, I was like, I'm not, I kind of know what this means, but I don't really know what this means. And I have like a somewhat better sense of this now. Um, So I can try to say something like, there's this sort of implicit model in the rationalist water about like what it means to believe something and also what it means to like update on evidence and change your mind about believing something. And that model really applies best to things like coronavirus is actually a great example. It applies to things like, okay, so right now I have some beliefs about the coronavirus. I believe something about masks. I believe something about social distancing. I believe something about like, the, the new strains, you know, and I acquired evidence for those beliefs through various processes, mostly from like listening to people that I trust. And like that kind of arena, the sort of things that are like pretty similar looking to science is like a pretty good, like arena for sort of the rationalist point of view on what beliefs are and like what evidence is and what it looks like. Like I could listen to my friend the next day who tells me like, Hey, by the way, you should update your masks. And I don't have to like, engage with that belief at like a bunch of different levels of my being i don't have to have a lot of feelings about it i can just be like hey i believe you 
like you're a trustworthy guy that I like. So I'm going to change my mask on the basis of hearing you talk about it. And that's fine. But I, to me, the rationalist, there's a part of the rationalist ethos that wants to apply that same kind of model and standard to much more personal and intimate beliefs, like beliefs about what kind of a thing human value is and about like what kind of a thing a person is and about like what people want. And like those kinds of things are just much murkier. It's like much different to try thinking about them. It's much different to try thinking about like, Oh yeah. What is it that humans truly value? That's like a very philosophical or spiritual or religious question, you know? And like people try to apply the same kinds of methods. Like they try to apply like, Oh, like, I have some beliefs about those questions and though my beliefs are like the things that I'll tell you if you ask me and I can like update those beliefs in response to evidence. Like the way it should go is if someone could give me a really good argument, like, Oh, actually you think that humans value love, but here's a really good argument about how actually it's not about that. And then I'm supposed to like change my mind if they give me a good argument instead of being like, well, I don't really understand this argument, but you can't, but I like my soul objects to it. So yeah, I'm <laughs> listen to it. Like this is, this is a very different subject. It requires a very different approach. And like, I don't, I don't feel like I have a super snappy thing to say about this, but like, as far as just my observations of like the sociology, the way I, the way a, a thing I think is happening is like, okay, so when I was in school, I learned how to write essays. And in those essays, I like expressed a bunch of opinions, you know, and I go back and read those essays later. Like I go, I have my essays from high school and middle school still. And I go back and I like, don't remember thinking any of that stuff. <laughs> like I just, I'm like opining about like the Iraq war or something. I'm like, what the fuck? I didn't have any yeah. opinions about the Iraq war. I was just like <laughs> parroting some shit that I had heard. Like there's like, there's like opinions as in like, this is the stuff that I'm going to write in an essay to impress my teachers. And then there's opinions as in like, this is the stuff I actually believe like capital, actually cap capital believe, you know, this is the stuff that I believe enough to act on directly. Uh, there's this, and there actually is the funny thing is there is actually a term in rational discourse for this. The term is beliefs versus aliefs. Yes. I was going to mention that. Yeah. Where beliefs are like the things that you say and aliefs are like, well, I don't believe that there are ghosts, but if, I'm, I'm going to, if this house is haunted enough, I'm going to leave. <laughs> I actually discuss that with my wife on a regular basis. Yeah. When I'm like just reminding her that there aren't any ghosts in the house. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's I'm, I'm a bad man. Um, <laughs> uh, it's good to get a, good to get an info hazard into every show. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast that actually harms its audience. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, okay. So I mean, like that—that's actually an interesting point. So are are you? And I think the belief versus alief thing is is kind of a valuable contribution conceptually oh, yeah. from rationality. Are, are are you just suggesting that they're not going far enough? Yeah, like I, it ties into all sorts of other stuff for me. There is like, there's another concept that is also actually existed very early on, like rational. The, the classic less wrong sort of meme sphere talked a lot about acrasia, which is just like procrastination. You're like, Oh, there are all these things that I think are really good ideas and I'm not doing them. That's, that's horrible. You know, I like the stuff that, you know, on Tumblr or Twitter would be called executive dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And I think it has a lot to do with this, like 
there's a way that you can get very split between like, here are all the things I feel like I ought to believe as a good rationalist or whatever. And then here are all the things that I really actually believe. And mm-hmm. I just think my, and we can, we could get way into this, but like my sort of one sentence gloss of what a crazy is, is there are things that you think that you're supposed to do, but you don't actually want to do them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Oh, I like think I'm supposed to like do AI safety, but for some reason, I'm not doing it. Mm, I must have revealed a, preference. I must have a creature. You know, it's like no, you just don't want to do it. Like it's fine. <laughs> it's okay to not want to do it. And like th- that gets that gets at the heart of the whole thing for me. It's like there's this constant sort of like tendency to focus on explicitly declared verbal beliefs, and I think it leads to people like you could say LARPing having beliefs like they're playing this game where they're like here are the beliefs that i'm supposed to have as a good rationalist and i'm going to talk about them when i go to parties and then i'm going to mysteriously fail to act on them or you go another level be like oh i'm going to like pressure myself into acting on them like top down i'm going to like force myself to like act on these beliefs that i think i'm supposed to have and those people of course burn out you know they try to work at some rationalist or ea organization and they can't make themselves keep doing it because they don't want (laughs) to like that also feels kind of protestant mm-hmm. can i say that like yeah, <laughs> like you know like these are things that good people do yeah, i want to yeah. be a good person exactly. I'm gonna do, therefore i'm going to do these things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah i don't know i i don't think that i've had that kind of that kind of issue myself I, again i guess thanks catholic school for sort of raising me right <laughs> but 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 like I've seen so many people who maybe fall into that trap and then just beat themselves up constantly. Oh yeah, when when they're not actually doing these things that they feel like they're supposed to want to do, it's just like yes, no, exactly. Relax, man. Find a new moral code that doesn't force you to drag yourself over the coals. Oh, Interesting. It's, yeah, it's just such a problem, and like it's very common. You know, like I maybe one of the most interesting things I've ever done in some sense is just. I volunteered at a lot of these rationality workshops and the thing that I was supposed to be doing at those workshops was helping people with their problems. You know, I would like talk to the participants and I'd be like, Hey, you know, in various ways, like, Hey, what are your problems and what can we do about them? And so I got to just like, I got to have like clinical experience almost just like, okay, here's what people are actually struggling with. And here's what happens when I actually try to help them. And I just kept running into certain kinds of issues over and over again. Like people just kept seeing stuck on very emotional stuff they're like this this thing i kind of think is a good idea but i feel really bad about it so i'm not doing it like that there's like oh there are all these like plans i feel like i should have or like these plans that i've been making but i don't execute them because they feel bad and that was also my problem i was having that problem too i was like oh yeah i feel like i should be doing more about this ai safety stuff but i just keep not doing it what's up with that and you know i just kept drilling down on this i was like what's going on with this and i just i just was eventually had to reach the conclusion was like oh like I just don't actually want to do it, but I feel like I should. I got very focused on the word should. There was This was actually a meme kind of in our community for a little bit of people being like, shoulds are bad and we shouldn't have them. Yeah. Oh, should. But it was, I, it was I, real. It was like a real reaction to this very common thing we were all experiencing about, oh, there's all these things that we feel like we should do. Yeah. Ugh. Autism with an O. <laughs> Autism. Oh, that's very cute. Yeah. Man, so okay, so one one question that I have about these critiques, how much of it do you think, and, and maybe you can't even separate this and there's just feedback, but how much of this do you think falls out of, I don't know, like 
propositional errors in rationalism or or just like theoretical deficiencies in, in some sense versus just kind of some some kind of like this is who rationalists tend to be coming in and it's it's all a matter of selection. I mean, I, I guess if you say something like, well, it's selection, then you have to ask, okay, why are this why are these people selecting to go and yeah. you know, aff- affiliate with these ideas? It's a good question. I mean, I think I think you kind of synthesize those. I think you're kind of painting a picture that's like rationalist writing outputs a very specific vibe and it attracts people with a very specific vibe. And that vibe is like correlated to, I think, having some kind of like philosophically mistaken assumptions about how various things work, like how beliefs work and how evidence works. And so those people just kind of gather. They're like, oh, yeah, I totally think that's how it should be. Everything should be as much like science as possible or as much like this particular caricature of science as possible. And I'm going to try to run my life that way. And they're like, great, that's what we're trying to do, too. Come over here and we'll hang out. And then it just goes poorly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I think it, I think the, the two kind of reinforce each other. There's like there are some philosophical mistakes, according to me, and they attract certain kinds of people who agree with those philosophical mistakes. And then it's all they're all kind of reinforcing each other. Like, oh yes, we all this is the way it is, and you can end up in this very like closed system. Like you know, like I said, a lot of rationalists, at least in the Bay Area IRL community, I don't know about elsewhere, are like very socially awkward. And maybe the rational community is like literally the first place they've ever felt like they fit in. And that's like heartwarming and cool. And it also can lead to like this kind of isolation effect where you only hang out with other rationals. You know, like we have all these group houses that people like to make fun of. And, but it really does lead to this effect where like, it could be the case that the only people you ever see or talk to on a regular basis are other rationalists. And insofar as like, they're all sort of carrying around certain kinds of like vibes or certain kinds of philosophical errors. Those are just going to like accumulate by default, you know? Like, yeah, no, this yeah. is just the way it is. Everyone believes this. this. All the good people act this way. That's just, it's just, it's just like that. And one of the things that really helped me break out of that was just making friends in other places. Like I got to make friends with a bunch of hippies, basically, who were like really into talking about their feelings instead of about their thoughts. And that was very refreshing because uh-huh. it was just more fun hanging out with those guys. Right? Yeah. No, it's that's actually really interesting. Like if I, I, I think the importance of finding people who are just fun to be around mm-hmm. and then making a point of like trying to be around them mm-hmm. and not like vampiring, but just like <laughs> figuring out how to get that sort of wavelength is such a massive quality of life improvement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Okay. Um, well, I don't know. I, we've been going for almost an hour and a half, nice. so maybe we should wind down unless do you, do you want to make any like kind of final point or plea or, or oh, anything man, like that? If I have final points. I guess like I'm I'm really glad that the way we did the last segment here was like what are three things that you thought were good and three criticisms you have like I there's this kind of uh, it's like a slightly mean way to say it but there's this guy who tweeted once something like the internet is borderline <laughs> as in borderline personal disorder and yeah. he was referring specifically to this aspect of borderline that involves like splitting like either things are all good or all bad. And I've thought about that a lot since I saw that tweet. They're really, once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. Like there's, there's just, you know, this is obviously not an original talking point though. There's this like insane lack of nuance just everywhere about everything. Everything is all good or all bad. All groups of people are either all good or all bad, et cetera, et cetera. And so like, I'm, I kind of feel good about like making a sense for nuance. It's like, no, some things are good and some things are bad actually. (laughs) Like really, like it, it seems so simple when I say it that way, but it's, it's shocking how difficult it is to find a, 
a person who is literally willing to be like, here are some good things. And also here are some bad things about. Yeah. So I am going to (laughs) bravely attempt (laughs) like a person who admits to some nuance. Like I think the rationalists are really cool. I'm really glad they exist. If specifically even just for coronavirus posts, like there's this guy's V Mauschewitz. Uh, who also has a cool blog and he's been like doing all these weekly updates about COVID. And I so grateful. I'm so grateful to that. Like, it's just, it's helped me stay so much saner about the whole situation. Just being like, Oh my God, someone who will tell me what's going on. Who's not the fucking New York times or whatever. (laughs) Like he is my journalist, you know, at this point Yeah. about that situation. And then there are like, like I know, you know, there's this micro COVID project that I think is really cool. They're like, Oh, we can help you quantify the COVID risk of various things. So you can like kind of have a life while this is all happening. Like I know some of the people who worked on that project, like several of them have called themselves rationalists. They're very cool people. I'm very grateful. I'm glad that that project exists. Like there's just the, the people in this community by and large are like sincere about wanting to do the right thing. And that's not super common. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like I really appreciate that. I appreciate what I got out of being around them for so long. And like, I hope that my criticisms are not taken as like, I also had a lot of anger to work through at the, towards the rationality community for a while, but I feel better about it now. And now I'm just like, I just want us all to like work together to like figure out how to do good stuff in the world, man. That's what I want. Like, let's, we don't have to be enemies. I don't want to be enemies with the rationalists. I like, it's just, you know, we could just all, we could all work together. Fuck. Just, ah, oh, jeez, we could be friends. <laughs> Yeah, no, I man, I completely agree with that. I mean, I had a talk about this with um, with Jacob Velkovich the other day, and which which I think was great. I mean, we had occasionally been snippy at each other online, but I mean, ultimately, I mean, whenever stuff like this happens, like there's some kind of an outsider who's like going and sniping at, well, Scott in particular. I mean, Scott of all people, yeah. Like I, I don't know. I feel very. I mean, in a sense, I feel very protective toward rationality in that I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, accepting all of your criticisms, um, I, I don't know, I think there is just a lot of value there. And, you know, even though I've never really been part of the community myself in, in the same sense that you were, certainly, like they're doing incredible things and like it means a lot for them. And it's, you know, if nothing else, like it's just this little niche, this little social niche where a bunch of people who I mean, often say could, wouldn't necessarily fit in somewhere else if on a place where they sort of fit in. And I deeply resent it when people try and take that away, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it feels like I'm just, just like rank bullying, honestly, oh, yeah, for sure. So I don't know. Um, and not, not like I'm a jock now or anything, <laughs> but, but, but it's like, no, stop trying to stuff these people into lockers. <laughs> yeah. They don't deserve it. Yeah. For so, sure, like Scott Alexander of all people, he's just a nice guy, man. Like, he's just it—he just actually is as nice as he appears on the internet. That's just true, as far as I can tell. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, all right, hey, I—I I view this as a smashing success. Um, I think we should probably cut it off now. Yeah, this sounds but dude, good. Thank, thanks so much for pitching this. Um, yeah. I, you know, really happy to do the quick turnaround and I'll, I'll get it online in probably like half an hour. Amazing. Oh my God. I feel so good about this. Yeah, this would be fun. I, this, this could do some numbers, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, no, likewise. Okay, <laughs> okay cool. cool. Um, yeah, I'm going to hop off and do that. Um,